So evolutionary biologists tend to think of the interaction between genes and traits as a one-way street. Genes influence traits, and they do so generation to generation, unless a mutation happens in a gene, in which case its function might be changed, and as a consequence, the trait that it influences might appear different. And from that time forward, there's a faithful inheritance of that interaction. And this kind of a model of direct interactions works well for many kinds of traits, eye color, for instance. But when we're talking about culture, the situation can be a lot more complex. Um, so instead of having direct interactions, we can have situations where uh, a change in a, in a cultural trait may precede any or happen in the absence of any genetic change. Um, and it may, in fact, set up a situation where a particular kind of genetic change is favored. So culture can lead the, the, the interaction. But the converse can happen as well. A change genetically could potentiate a cultural change by establishing a situation where a particular kind of, of, for instance, cognitive capability becomes possible. But that may not actually happen until uh, um, much later. And so we can have a decoupling in time of genetic and cultural interactions. So these sorts of interactions are, um, can be more subtle, uh, they can be more complex, and they can be separated in, in, in time. Now, that, all that makes it difficult to study gene-culture interactions, but one kind of interaction that, that um, I'm quite interested in studying, in some cases we can begin to suss out what those interactions are because it's a fairly dramatic cultural change. And I'm talking about the change that happened when our ancestors moved from this environment, uh, which was in some ways very nice, it's warm, there's a lot of water, there's quite a lot of food, uh, into this environment. And this happened several million years ago when East Africa began to dry up, and the habitats that our ancestors were living in began to shrink, forcing them out into a very, very different kind of environment where their food options were really quite different. And out of this shift, we see a large change in diet that I want to talk about today. Chimpanzees, which we'll consider for the next couple minutes, is a kind of proxy for our, our ancestors, our common ancestors, are largely fruit-eating animals. They do eat some insects, so they're quite famously sometimes eat meat, but it's important to, to recognize that these contributions are relatively small compared to fruit and to some extent leaves and tubers. Um, in contrast, our, our Australopithecine ancestors out on the savanna were scavenging meat. They probably became better and better at hunting meat. And to some extent, they were eating starchy tubers as well. But this is a radical shift in diet, and it happened relatively quickly. Uh, it was probably initially driven entirely culturally. And the question I want to ask now is, what impact did that have on our, uh, our genetic makeup. If you think about it, this kind of change, it's, it's pretty easy to say, don't eat fruit, eat meat. Um, but it, if you think about all the different things that had to happen for this to be successful, it's quite a wide range of traits. So of course, foraging methods have to change. There are a number of components that might go with that, we might imagine. The food itself is different. We have to handle it differently in terms of extracting nutrients, storing nutrients, mobilizing nutrients, detoxifying secondary compounds. We have to chew it differently. Um, and food preferences change. The things that we avoid, the things that we're attracted to, uh, we might also expect changes there. So, so how pervasive, indeed, is the impact of this cultural change on, on the human genome?
In other words, how much has our genetic material been affected by this one cultural shift? It's a big one, but it's, it's quite likely to be pervasive. So one way we can begin to think about this is to look at the way in which our genes are used and the way in which they're expressed in different tissues in the body. And so I'm, we're embarking on a project in my lab to look at what we might call tissues of interest uh, for comparisons of gene expression, um, the utilization of the genome, which is different between different tissues. For instance, you don't express the same genes in your muscle cells as you do in your brain, um, and for good reason, those tissues have different demands, and so different sets of genes are utilized. So what we want to think about now is how that's changed as a result of this, of this cultural shift to a different kind of diet. And some of the tissues we've been looking at um, are brain, muscle, liver, adipose tissue, fat, that's what we normally call it, uh, and kidneys, because these have particular uh, kinds of interest um, in terms of thinking about dietary shifts. So this is a plot, I'm just going to walk you through this because it probably looks a little bit unfamiliar, where we're looking at pretty much every gene in the human genome and asking, does your brain make more of it or does a chimpanzee brain make more of it? And the way this plot works is that genes that are expressed at very low levels are at this end of the plot and genes that are expressed at very high levels are at this end of the plot. If the, if the, and every dot is a different gene. If that gene is above the center line, that means it's higher the expression is higher in humans, and if it's below the center line, means it's higher in chimpanzees. And if the dots are colored, that means it's, it's a statistically significant difference. And, and the thing to notice here is that a lot of genes are differentially expressed between humans and chimpanzees. Not surprising, we think of our cognitive capabilities as pretty much our carrying, you know, like our, 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 our prideful thing about what makes us unique as humans. Um, but maybe what's <laughs> a little humbling is that um, you know, genes that are higher expressed in humans and chimpanzees, it's about symmetrical. It's about 50-50. And there's no obvious way for us to tell, just looking at a plot like this, which of these genes might be the result of that dietary shift and which of them might be associated with other kinds of human cognitive capabilities or uniquely chimpanzee cognitive capabilities. I mean, who knows, right? But if we look at a different tissue, like fat, we see a different kind of plot. And again, we're looking at every gene in the genome now and asking the degree of differential regulation. And what you see here is a greater degree of asymmetry. There are a lot more genes that are expressed at a high level in humans, uh, that differentially at a high level in humans relative to chimpanzees. And so this asymmetry is implying that there's something physiologically different about fat in humans. More has changed during human origins than has changed uh, during the comparable time in chimpanzee evolution. And we can look at, these aren't just anonymous dots, we can actually figure out what they are, and we can ask what kinds of genes have shown the biggest changes. And not surprisingly, a lot of those genes are involved with either the uptake, the transport, or the metabolism of fat. In fact, almost all of those dots are genes that are expressed at a higher level in human beings and they're pretty specifically involved in dealing with different kinds of fat. So that looks like an example of culture having a big impact on, on human gene utilization. Another way we can think about this impact on the human genome is to ask where are the significant mutations happening during human origins? And if we look at most kinds of genes, those mutations, those, those, those selected adaptive mutations are sprinkled, there are a lot of them, but they're sprinkled 
quite widely throughout the genome. If we look at the immune system, there are many such mutations. Not surprisingly, we're always faced with new kinds of challenges um, in terms of, of adapting to pathogens. But what's really striking is if you look at genes that have something to do with diet, and not surprisingly, genes that have something to do with neural development, there are a lot more of those kinds of adaptive mutations during human origins than there are during chimpanzee origins. And so this kind of asymmetry is telling us something about what's happened differentially during the same period of time in, um, in human evolution versus chimpanzee evolution. This maybe is not surprising. We know our brains look and function differently. This is something that we didn't really know so much about until recently, but it suggests that there's been a lot of evolutionary action, a lot of adaptation going on in the kinds of genes that are associated primarily with um, our diet. So we can go back to this diagram I showed you earlier, and we can now start to put some examples in for these different categories of, of um, both behavioral, anatomical, uh, and metabolic changes that, that are plausibly interpreted as a response to a cultural shift from eating primarily fruit to eating a, a very meat-rich diet. Not exclusively meat, but a very meat-rich diet. And in each of these cases, I'm, I'm, I've highlighted a couple genes, one or a few genes, that have been implicated not simply in, in terms of guilt by association that, oh yes, expressions changed, or oh yes, there's an adaptive mutation, but where people have been able to follow up and do additional studies and um, where people have begun to put together the evidence that, that really begins to look like a case where, yes, this gene has changed in function in some comprehensible way that we can link to a particular kind of trait. And so what I want to do now is, is tell you about one of those um, cases where we've been able to go down in depth and, and look a little bit more carefully at what's actually happening. And the particular example I want to talk to you about is, is a set of genes that we think are associated with the expansion of human brain size and a response to the dietary shift both together. So a kind of a conjunction between these two important sets of traits. A couple of years ago, or actually it's been quite a while now, um, a paper was published called The Expensive Tissue Hypothesis um, by, by Peter Wheeler and Leslie Aiello, and they pointed out that, that the brain is a very metabolically demanding tissue. It burns a lot of calories and it does it all the time. And our brains are about two and a half times the volume of chimpanzee brains. They're also higher densities of neurons, and we, consequently we burn a lot more energy with our brains than chimpanzees do. So it's great to have a big brain, but it comes at a cost. And given that our basal metabolic rates are roughly a function of our body size, if you're gonna grow proportionally a larger brain, you're gonna have to take that energy from somewhere else. In other words, energy's a zero-sum game. If you're gonna make a much bigger brain, something's gotta give. And they propose some possible trade-off tissues gut, muscle, and fat being the ones that they mentioned. Just to give you a sense of how big a difference this is, I mean, look at this, 11, over 11 watts per kilogram versus just a little over one in the rest of your body. So your brain costs you a lot. So how can you do this? And a, a lot of, a lot of um, effort has gone into finding this trade-off in, in terms of gross organ size. Shorter guts, are we less muscled? Do we have different amounts of fat and so forth? But it occurred to us that one of the places where this trade-off might actually be accomplished is at the level of gene function, or more specifically protein function here. 
And we focused our attention on a group of, of genes that are involved in producing transport molecules that move sugar across cell membranes. The reason we became interested in these genes is they show differences in expression and they show unusual accumulations of, of, of adaptive mutations. And it just began to click in our heads that this might be an interesting place to look. And so we began looking at these sugar transport molecules. And what we found was something very interesting. There are different versions of these sugar transporters in different organs in your body. And there's one that works primarily in your brain, and there's another one that works primarily in your skeletal muscles. And what we did was look at the level of expression of those genes in the different tissues in humans and chimpanzees and also in rhesus macaques to be sort of an outgroup comparison. And what we found was that in human brain, the brain transporters expressed at about two and a half, three times the level as it is in chimpanzees. In other words, you're making a lot more sugar transporter in your brain than a chimpanzee is on the cell surface of your, of your neurons. And conversely, in skeletal muscle, chimpanzees make more sugar transporter and you make less. And so this fits the prediction of the expensive tissue hypothesis in the sense that there's an allocation of a fixed amount of resource and you're putting more of it into the brain than you are into skeletal muscle, and chimpanzee is proportionally putting more into its skeletal muscle and less into its brain. So that fit the predictions um, pretty well. So it, it, just to kind of illustrate this graphically or sort of visually, so in case because I'm looking at graphs is often a little bit hard to do, imagine you have, here's the bloodstream servicing two different tissues, and if you had the same amount of transport molecules in each tissue, it's simply a result of mass action about the same amount of glucose is gonna cross the cell membrane in both of those tissues. But if you now double the number of transporters here and have the number of transporters there, which is about the difference we see, it's actually even a bigger difference than that, but if you just make that difference, what you're gonna end up with is, is a differential transport of glucose into the brain relative to skeletal muscle. Now, you might wonder whether that's really enough to make a difference in terms of brain function. And here we can turn to human genetics and, and look for some answers, and the answer, I would argue, is that, is that yes, this does make a difference. Oh, I should just say before I get to that, we do also see an accumulation of adaptive mutations in the regulatory regions of these genes, these regulatory regions being the ones that are responsible for, for, for um, changing expression levels uh, in, the different, in the different tissues. Now, why do we think this is functionally significant? Human genetics is um, a vast resource as far as I'm concerned for evolutionary biologists. We don't always take advantage of it very well, but there's a lot of really, really useful information there. And so we turn to the literature on human genetics to ask what happens when these genes don't function properly. Um, and the, the, the short answer is it's not very good. If you have one good copy of this, of this brain-specific sugar transporter and one partially defective copy, there are some pretty severe cognitive uh, impacts, and there are hundreds of individuals that have now been diagnosed where this is the reason why they have cognitive deficits. If you have one good copy and one absolutely non-functional copy of this gene, you're making about half the amount of sugar transporter. In other words, you're making about the same amount a chimpanzee would make, and it's not enough. What happens is that during, during, um, during gestation, the brain just simply can't grow and you end up with a reduced sized brain and that's 
directly a result of the fact that you don't make enough sugar transport. Your brain literally starves. Now, two bad copies, uh, there are no cases known medically, um, and it's probably because these individuals just, just uh, they, they die in utero. So here's a picture of what we think might have actually been happening. Um, for much of the time since humans and chimpanzees separated uh, evolutionarily, brain size was actually not changing very much. But about two, two and a half million years ago, we begin to see larger and larger encephalization um, on the lineage leading to humans, whereas it has not changed. There are, there, are, there, are, there are basically no chimpanzee fossils in here. But the range of chimpanzee brain sizes and modern human brain size is very different. This, this set of changes happened not in a few large steps, but in many, many small steps. The fossil record makes that unambiguously clear. So what we think is actually going on here was as the change in diet produced richer and richer food sources for us, increased fats and meat, there were responsive changes in the genome that allowed the allocation of this energy into a hungrier and hungrier brain, which allowed us to, in turn, develop additional cognitive capabilities that allowed us to refine our changes in diet. And so rather than this being a unidirectional set of influences, it was actually a reciprocal set of influences. I want to end by assuring you that I did very little of this work myself. I'm very fortunate to have a group of talented graduate students and postdocs who work with me, and most of the work I talked about was done by Courtney, Olivier, and Lisa in my lab. Uh, these are some of my collaborators and our, our funding sources. I thank you for your patience. <laughs>